Welcome to RAQA Today, the podcast that puts the fun back in quality, compliance, and regulatory affairs. Here's your host, Michelle Lott. So thanks for joining me, everybody. We've got a kind of a, a pretty deep topic here today, so, so bear with me. Um, we should have plenty of time for questions at the end of the presentation. We've got a lot to cover today. Um, we're going to go through the introduction to digital health, general wellness, uh, telemedicine, mobile medical devices, computer-aided diagnostics, and then uh, software as a medical device. Uh, and I have more up my sleeve if we make it through all of this. So if we start with just the concept of digital health in general and how does the, F the FDA view digital health, well, it can cover a variety of categories from mobile health, health information IT, wearable devices, telehealth and telemedicine, and then personalized medicine as well. And in terms of what is a digital health technology, it is a computing platform or system that provides connectivity, software, and uh, sometimes sensors for healthcare and related uses. So, but what falls within the FDA's oversight? This is a very complex area that is heavily related on your claims and devices can be considered anywhere from general health and wellness products that are low risk and very low regulation to devices uh, covered underneath a variety of enforcement discretions to regulated medical devices that get into be higher risk and higher regulation oversight from the FDA. So it really kind of covers the gambit in the ways that FDA regulates medical products. The advantages of digital health that include that it can um, reduce inefficiencies in healthcare, improve access to healthcare, reduce costs, increase quality, and then make medicine more personalized for patients. There are many areas of digital health focus uh, for the FDA. We're going to cover only a handful of these today, but these are really cross-cutting against anything that is uh, software or connectivity-based. FDA has gone to the lengths of committing this new uh, the Digital Health Center of Excellence, which is a special division of the FDA where its objective is to align and coordinate digital health work across the different review divisions of the FDA. And the, the intent of this, this new division is to support empowering and connecting states, stakeholders, sharing knowledge across industry, but also interagency or intra-agency, and then innovating regulatory approaches. Those of you who have followed digital health know that the FDA's guidance documents and regulations often seem like that they're uh, a step behind what technology is actually doing. So one of FDA's goals is to figure out how to accelerate that development process of how they're going to regulate digital health. So FDA's digital health action plan includes an integrated approach where they intend to refine policies and provide guidances to build uh, the, their internal bench strength and expertise, which includes getting the right in-house technical expertise for FDA staff, 
but also launching an entrepreneur in residence program that is working alongside FDA on how these products should be regulated and what type of documentation should be present. And then finally, um, to, to use all of that information um, to have new and streamlined pathways for software development. And these include initiatives that we'll uh, go over in a little bit more detail around a pre-certification program for companies that are specializing in digital health and how we can transform the regulations around those. So if we look at the evolution of FDA's uh, digital health framework, you can see this started some time ago in 2013 with the mobile app guidance document and also considerations for cybersecurity. It evolved into the medical device data systems and they continue to update the, the app's guidance document. In 2016, they came up with how they were going to uh, oversee general wellness and software as a medical device clinical considerations. They've continued to update these guidances. And then towards the end of last year, they actually came out with a slew of either brand new or draft updates uh, that, that they planned. There was probably at least about six that came out all about the same time that reflected FDA's ongoing progression of how they're thinking about software development. As part of that Center for Excellence, they have a three-phase plan, and we're currently kind of in phase three here to build and sustain FDA's capacity. They are actively continue to try to build strategic partnerships with industry, update and implement their regulatory framework, and continue harmonization with other regulators. So this will include things like internationally harmonized standards, IMDRF and GHTF guidance documents and the like. So if we take a look at FDA's general wellness policy, this came out September of 2019. And it, the purpose of it was so that FDA could take a more hands-off approach for low-risk general products that are technically considered FDA, but because of their low-risk nature, FDA is choosing to have very little oversight of these. And these are products that only prom promote a healthy lifestyle or promote a well-known association between a lifestyle and a particular disease state or condition. And the way that this is evaluated is through your claims as you, as you define them on your website, your social media, and your labels and IFUs. So ultimately, the, your claims are going to come down to, are you regulated or not? So if we go through the decision-making chart, uh, flow chart about, are you considered to be general wellness? Obviously, if you're invasive or implantable, you are not low risk. Involve an intervention or technology that may, may propose, pose a risk. You're also not considered low risk. Now these can be it, even general consumer products like, like lasers or other products that might create radiation that the FDA, typically you wouldn't think that they, they oversee, but they do. So if the CDRH actively regulates similar products, then with any type of regulatory oversight or special controls, then you are not going to fall into the current area of general wellness.
So back to the claims, we continue going down this flow chart. If you sustain general improvement or functions associated with the general state of health, if you have reference to any specific diseases or questions, no, then you fall into what's called general wellness, um, the category one, which we'll take a look at that. These are things that, that would be considered general wellness category one. Anything to, like, say, to promote uh, relaxation or manage stress, sleep management, learning, improve general mobility, like maybe powering, uh, not, not creating a powered wheelchair, but like creating a sports wheelchair or something that's going to make a manual wheelchair go faster or be easier to use. Claims related to healthy weight or to promote physical fitness. All of these are general wellness products that the FDA technically defines as medical devices, but is not really um, exercising any technical oversight. But if you have a reference to a specific disease or condition, and you're just saying that this could is used to promote, track, or encourage choices, which could be a part of a healthy lifestyle, and you keep your claims to may help reduce the risk of certain chronic diseases or conditions. Those are considered category 2A products underneath the general wellness guidance. Whereas if you say it may help you living well with certain chronic diseases or conditions, then those are considered category 2B. So the types of claims that you can make in category 2A is that, for instance, you can say, it promotes physical activity, which are a part of a healthy lifestyle that may help reduce the risk of high blood pressure. And you can make this linkage because again, this is a well-known condition that physical activity improves blood pressure. You can also say things like tracking your activity sleep patterns promotes your healthy sleep habits, and healthy sleep habits are well-known in reducing or preventing type 2 diabetes. Whereas for category 2B, you can make claims such as you're going to coach breathing techniques to help with relaxation skills, which are a part of a healthy lifestyle involving conditions like migraines. Track or record sleep work exercise that is well known to reduce anxiety. So here's an interesting example of a product for dysphagia, which is a swallowing disorder, which is technically, it's, it's a disorder, but it's not from injury. And so it's a sensor that you can wear under your chin to encourage swallowing exercises. Now, what's important is that this just, she wears the sensor and it just measures what is her baseline and what is her target. And it helps encourage her to uh, swallow hard enough to get to the dotted line. So it's helping her live well with this condition. It is not in and of itself treating the condition. So if we look at a similar device for a device to uh, treat bruxism or help live well with bruxism, depending on how we position this. So bruxism is a condition where you grind or clench your teeth. 
It can happen when you're awake or asleep, but it's typically a sleep-related movement disorder. So let's say you are a company and you've got an app that could be for a user, and you also have a future product configuration that could be for a clinician to interface with the user data and with the user directly. You have a headband, you have a monitor or a sensor, but it also has a ability for uh, biofeedback. So this could be anything like choose your own adventure. This could start with something like a trip to the fridge, which is no prescription. You can retail, lay use, general wellness. It's not regulated as long as you're careful with your claims and you do not have that biofeedback um, element in it to which it takes it from monitoring your sleep to giving you actual physical prompts or feedback. So it could be like a walk in the park. If you say that this is for prescription professional use, then there is already a code that regulates it. It's product code HCC. It's a biofeedback device. And this product code is 510K exempt. It is class two, so you will have to follow design controls, but you will not have to interact with the FDA via submission process. However, if we want to say that this is for lay use, retail commercial purchasing, it is still a class two device with that biofeedback loop in it, but now it requires a 510K because if we look at the regulation for this product code, this HCC, we can see, see that the definition is a visual or auditory signal that corresponds to a physiological parameter that can help the patient control voluntarily these parameters. And so the reason why it's important to understand all these nuances is that it's only 510K exempt if it, when it is a prescription battery powered device for relaxation training, muscle re-education, and prescription use. So in that case, you can say it's 510K exempt. But if you say it's intended for lay use, you can see how it exceeds the description of this regulation for prescription use. And now you have to consider a 510K and possibly even a de novo, depending on your conversations with the FDA and your technology. So if we take a look at telemedicine, there are four basic types of telemedicine. There's live feedback video conferencing, store and forward video conferencing, remote patient monitoring, and then mobile health. So if we take a look, there are many ways from healthit.gov that they've identified that patients interface with their prov providers online. And all of these have been, you know, the hot topic during COVID. You can see that even just the first quarter of 2020 uh, saw a 154% increase in telemedicine and it skyrocketed from there over the past two years. So if you have a telemedicine device, how do you get it to the market? Does it meet the definition of a device? Well, yes, it does. So, but should you start preparing your um, pre-market application, pre-market notification? 
Maybe, maybe not. There is several um, FDA guidance documents that we have to consult with. The most significant of them is the um, policy for device software functions and modal, mobile medical applications. So the FDA drafted this. They intend to selectively apply regulatory oversight only to the software functions that are both medical devices and whose functionality could pose a risk to the patient's safety if a function didn't perform as intended. So now we have to look at not only the definition and the claims, but we have to look at the, the risk profile and examples of what the FDA feels like fits into the different risks. So this guidance document actually has several appendices that, that classify slice and dice uh, different definitions and uh, examples that FDA thinks uh, are and are not. So they start with the are not medical devices. And these are things that are, are more interactive apps like question answer quizzes, flashcards, training videos. These are also software functions intended to log, track, evaluate, and educate healthy eating, exercise, weight loss. It's very similar to, um, you know, a, a general wellness device. And these guidances overlap between the general wellness and this one, the mobile apps. Meal planning, tracking a normal, healthy baby, not a sick baby's uh, sleeping and feeding habits. So Appendix B is examples of software functions that the FDA intends to exercise enforcement description. So the first one, they're just like, okay, we don't think that these are even medical devices. This next one says there are medical devices, but we're choosing to basically pick and choose the level of oversight we have. A lot of people think that, think that enforcement discretion could be a get, a get out of jail free card. It is, it is not, it usually means that it's just that you don't need a pre-market approval prior to marketing your um, device, but it may have other controls and you really have to understand its classification to correctly apply those controls. So again, it's much easier. It, typically, you still have to uh, follow uh, red, the registration listing annually, which is nearly a $6,000 a year endeavor. And your quality system regulation requirements are still, still a requirement. So some examples of these that they say are medical devices, but fall within enforcement discretion are periodic education apps, like for, uh, you know, people to quit smoking, pregnant people, medication reminders, yeah, tracking your, your medication, can fo follow uh, user-configured reminders for medication adherence. And then some more examples are patient portals so that they can get access to their own health information from their uh, clinical visits. Appendix C of this guidance document are examples of software functions that the FDA believes are clearly within its purview as regulated mobile apps. Most of these have utilize sensors and a smartwatch or some sort of external platform example to like to measure blood glucose that they have a maybe a light source that something like the camera on your phone 
the microwave on your phone, different things to, you know, maybe take a picture, analyze it with an algorithm. These are, and provide any type of diagnostics. These are all things that the FDA has, has purview over. They have a list in here of the different regulations and product codes that apply. And you can kind of get an idea of the type of, uh, a, a more enhanced idea of the type of products and how FDA regulates it with these examples. So back to our discussion about claims and what does it mean about the classification of your device? Let's take two very similar products and let's go through what makes this, is one of these a medical device? Is one of them a wellness device? How do they differ? So our first product is a device that obtains patient weight directly from a Bluetooth scale and sends daily messages to promote strategies for maintaining a healthy weight. Whereas we take a similar product and we say it's a device that obtains weight directly from the Bluetooth scale. It sends the daily messages to promote strategies for maintaining the weight and getting optimal nutrition for a tailored patient for tailored tailored for patients with diabetes, and it also helps you calculate and manage your BMI. Well, let's take a look at the FDA's definition for medical device. It is basically anything that's used to diagnose, cure, mitigate, treat, or prevent a disease or a condition that affects the structure of, its, of the body without acting like a drug in terms of being metabolized. So if we take a look at these uh, claims again, we can see the product on the left can be uh, considered a general wellness device, whereas the one on the right, because we're saying that this is tailored for patients with diabetes, it calculates your BMI, it makes recommendations, this qualifies as a medical device. But what happens if we take these same products and add some features? So looking at these again, the device on the left is to obtain the patient weight directly from the Bluetooth scale, send daily messages, promote strategies for tailored with patients for uh, diabetes and calculate the BMI. The one on the right says this is device obtained, uh, obtains patient weight, weight and heart rate directly from a Bluetooth scale and an at-home ECG since real-time data to a doctor for evaluation and diagnosis of diabetes and progression. Well, in this case, the one on the right is um, going to be uh, subject to enforcement discretion, which is another, which is also related to the general wellness claims. Whereas the one on the right, because it sends real-time data to a doctor for the evaluation and diagnosis of diabetes progression is requires a FDA pre-market authorization. So if we move on and we look at mobile medical apps uh, and, and medical devices, mobile apps are software programs that typically run on smartphones or other communication devices, but they can also be accessories that attach to your smartphone or otherwise communicate or a combination of accessories, software, and applications. These meet the definition of a medical device and that they are or are an accessory to a regulated device or transform a mobile platform into a regulated device. So if we take a look at an example, there's a Zio ECG monitor 
This includes the monitor. It has a wireless app for data analysis and reporting. It monitors you, but you can also interact with your phone to log your symptoms and communicate your symptoms to your doctor. So this product is has an intended use to capture, analyze, and report symptomatic and asymptomatic cardiac events. It de detects arrhythmia events and it transmits them to a monitoring center. And so therefore it's being used for the diagnosis of a disease. Therefore we can see it meets the requirements of a medical device. It does not meet the requirements for the, to be eligible for an enforcement discretion. And therefore it is subject to a pre-market approval and notification. And that something else that's tricky about modal, mobile medical apps is that, you know, you have considerations from the FDA, obviously, but you also have considerations for how are you going to handle HIPAA within your app and how it collects, transmits data. You could have considerations from the Federal Trade Commission or the Office of Civil Rights. So there's several different regulatory bodies that you need to consider. And the, the FTC actually has a mobile help apps interactive tool to help you understand their portion of this, this process and development cycle. So the regulatory requirements for a mobile app, like we've been talking with some of these other types of technologies, they can be considered class one general controls that might be subject to a variety of different requirements like quality management system, pre-market notifications, and kind of your usual suspects. It can be class two devices subject to a pre-market notification and 510K plus some kind of level of general and special controls. Could be class three, which is gonna be subject to pre-market approval and also those general controls. The risks of overstepping your bounds in terms of claims or misinterpreting the exemptions that could apply is that the FDA regularly sends um, mobile apps co companies warning letters for a whole variety of different types of applications. This one is a warning letter for an online eye exam. And the FDA told the company that basically what they thought was their mobile app that was exempt from pre-market notification, that it required a pre-market submission and defined it as a, a device because its intended use is in the diagnosis of a disease or other condition. So warning letters can be very costly to mitigate and then you have got a bad reputation with the FDA. So moving on, if we look at computer-aided devices, you've got the computer-aided detection devices, or CADE. These are things like aids in localizing or marking regions that may reveal specific abnormalities. These just highlight areas of interest only where computer-aided diagnosis or computer-aided detection and diagnosis they also indicate the likelihood of the presence of a disease or specify a disease type, as opposed to just, hey, you may want to look over here, there might be an anomaly. CADEX is uh, regulated more stringently because uh, oftentimes, even at class three, 
because they present a greater risk of misdiagnosis and they, they, things, uh, they present a risk beyond that, that the CAD-D, CAD-E on, only with the detection. You've got computer-aided triage, which helps to prioritize uh, things like images, and then computer-aided acquisition and optimization, which helps optimize images and diagnostic signals. So if we look at the progress for a CADEX type of software, here's one that came to market under De Novo in 2017 which is the FDA's process that means of new so that they don't have an existing regulation or product code that already captures this. So this is looking for lesions that are suspicious for cancer. The result of the de novo process is that you get, it results in a regulation. They're going to create a new product code and a new regulation that defines the type of submission, the type of controls that you have to bring this to market within. And so you can see once a regulation exists, then it becomes a viable pathway for subsequent 510k submissions. And you can see from 2019 to 2021, there were a handful of other products that came to market underneath this new regulatory path that was created once this CADEX product came to market. Again, it's all about your claims. And a lot of times I, I recommend to clients with software-related products to build upon your claims in subsequent submissions rather than going for the ultimate claim set all at one, one time. So you've got computer-aided detection. This would be something like an image-based tumor detection program. It's meant to just reveal abnormalities. Or CADEX, which is computer-aided diagnosis which is an image-based tumor grading system, which provides information beyond just identifying those abnormalities or places to look, but go further and also help interpret images. So now if we talk about the FDA's view of software as a medical device, if you remember our action plan, the FDA is trying to develop new and streamlined pathways for software, and that involves that pre-certification plan. The FDA views software in a couple of different aspects. It can be part of a medical device. It can be a standalone medical device, or it can be an accessory to medical device or not a device at all. It has a risk-based framework, so you have to know the classification of your product, and also the classification and risk of your software, which could be separate from that of your product itself. So you can see uh, the different kind of classifications based off of the significance of information in context of the healthcare submission to treat or diagnose, to direct clinical management, or to inform clinical management, you know, being kind of least serious to the more serious and higher classification. This is kind of a, just more to depict that the FDA takes into account the criticality of the healthcare situation and the combination of the significance of the information that's getting to uh, come up with that, that ranking paradigm. And depending on what uh, classification your software is, that will drive 
how much and what types of documentation that you need. So your digital health pre-certification or pre-cert pilot pro program is a new organizational-based regulatory approach for SAMDs. So what does that mean? This means that this is heavily based off of your quality management system rather than your pre-market activities. This relies heavily on a demonstrated culture of quality and organizational excellence. And it is based off of five pillars of excellence that the FDA has determined and you have to apply and get deemed competent in all of these pillars. They involve a safe patient experience, being committed to a high, the highest level of quality in your software development practices, clinical responsibility for patient-centric issues and clinical evaluation, a commitment to protect cybersecurity, which means you have to stay at the cutting edge of these things, and then a proactive culture where you are proactively approaching your surveillance and your assessment of your user needs and folding those into continuous learning and design updates. So who's currently in the program right now because you have to have a very well-developed organizational program and organizational quality culture, quality management systems. This is largely right now the, some of the very large and very heavy software-based companies. This is a program that is going to be very difficult for, for a startup or, or even small company to participate in. Related guidance documents. This again comes back to the four, the pillars of the guidance or the digital health innovation plan um, to refine the policies and provide guidances. They're up to, uh, and, and a lot of this came out of the 21st Century Cures Act, which had a focus on innovation and particularly around digital health. And like I mentioned earlier, the FDA came out with a slew of new guidance documents. You know, some of the biggest advice I can give is to not only know the guidance documents that are fi final, but those in draft, because they reveal the FDA's thinking on a good bit of, of on, on their practices that may seem like they're under development, but they're things that they've been discussing and pushing back on in submissions with industry oftentimes for years by the time they publish a guidance document. So conclusions, the CDRH is focusing very heavily on digital health right now and the convergence of medical devices and that connectivity and how all of that merges into consumer technology. So you really need to focus on determining the correct pathway for your digital health is quite complex. The correct classification is key and it can take could save you time and money, especially if you get into one of those areas where you get a warning letter or to avoid getting a warning letter. And the way we do that at Lean is through a correct and thorough regulatory pathway assessment where we take all, all your claims, your product features, your marketing material to make sure you stay in your lane and take advantage of, of any loopholes that might exist for where your product might not be regulated or might be regulated under enforcement discretion. So I'll take questions now.
And then you guys also can go on my website. I've got a regulatory pathway exam uh, analysis example. Depending on how many questions we have, I've got uh, some, some backup slides about the future of digital health and AI that I can go, go through as well. Michelle, thank you so much, so much information. It's, it's overwhelming to see how the FDA is responding to this, I guess, emerging industry. But I can imagine as a as an entrepreneur, small business, um, even more overwhelming to, to have to navigate on your own. Uh, we do have a couple of questions. So um, the first question is, do we have to catalog all the software functions and describe their intended uses? Yes. So intended use falls into your claim set as well. And I think you probably heard me say claims uh, half a dozen, if not a dozen times. And your claims can also you have to have a really clear intended use statement, but your claims are implied intended uses. And those can very much change just the way we saw with that uh, digital health example of the bruxism device by, you know, claiming that it had biofeedback. You, you know, now we move from general wellness to uh, it being regulated. And then by it having a biofeedback portion and for lay use, that all of a sudden is a different level of regulation as well. So all of those things work together um, to define uh, how the FDA views your product. Okay, thank you. Uh, next question is, does the FDA provide a tool to figure out if, if the company's web app is Dunovo? It does not. That is um, usually the outcome of a combination of that regulatory pathway assessment that, that we do to assess all these things. The FDA won't know that because there are so many innuendos of how your intended use, your product features and your claims stack up that it's not it, it, it's not a direct question to answer. Um, and the FDA won't uh, classify your product unless you do a submission that is called uh, like a pre-submission where you have a discussion with them about your product or a 513G where you flat out ask them the classification of your product or not ask them, you, you do your research, you tell them what you think your product is and you ask them if they agree. Next question or final question we have so far, can someone get the guidance documents? Are they all gathered on one site or are they in different, in different places? So the ones I talked about, I have links throughout the presentation and then also that summary slide at the end. That is the, the heaviest hitters. The FDA does have a recognized consensus database, but it, and it is searchable. So, but the problem is you have to know all of your terms so that you get the whole list of guidance documents. So, so yeah, start, start with uh, the ones in, in the presentation and then they will take you to other, um, other areas of the FDA website, recommend other guidance documents. Uh, and then also, you know, you might have just as much luck searching it on uh, FDA guidance for some of those keywords as you would on the recognized consensus database. Okay. I think this question is related. So for mobile apps, is it a claim to include a disorder as a search term keyword if it is not mentioned in the app description? That one's a little bit more um, complex. I'm happy to have a call to, to talk a little bit more in detail 
typically, you know, if, if, what's the purpose of the blood analysis? You know, that's just when you when you get blood involved, it, it's just such a borderline. How are you going to say that this isn't doing a that diagnosis of some sort? You know, I think some of those, uh, some of them are like, I, I think that the FDA is going to crack down on a lot of these ones that you see on TV. You know, all 23andMe, every one of their tests is cleared by the FDA in some way. Yeah, so so I think that 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 anytime, I, I think that that would be, it sounds like an IBD to me. All right, last call for questions. All right, we have another one here. Uh, what is the process to add additional claims or features to existing digital medical products? Yep, Michelle, I noted you, you said a, a couple of times that you should build upon your claims. So how does one do that? It's really important to know what your product roadmap is and ideally, you know, kind of assess those those stepping stones along that that will be along the way kind of all at once so that you don't overstep those bounds early in your product development and marketing. And so I would say every time you add a claim set that wasn't initially assessed, well, and even then, based off of FD, if FDA has come out with new guidances or clarifications or sent warning letters, you know, before you launch a new set of claims, you may, you'll want to do the reality check on, have I stayed in bounds? Is it still the same bounds um, to make sure that, that you can kind of progress in that way? If you are a regulated device already and you need to assess those um, and say you already have a 510K, you need to assess any changes you make to your product, to claims, features, technology, indications, to see if you need to do a new letter to file or a new uh, actual submission. All right, we'll give it a couple more minutes for questions. Uh, here we have another one. So is there guidance on what uh, type or magnitude of changes would constitute a letter to file versus a new 510K? Um, yes, there is a separate guidance document um, for assessing your changes and if they're significant or not. They've got some really nice flowcharts. Don't rely on just the flowcharts, though. You need to actually read the context around them to make sure you understand where those boundaries are. And then also there are some product-specific guidance documents that um, may exist that will at times define if if a change is significant or not. For instance, um, I know this is a digital health, but I have a client with examination gloves, which require 510K, and they uh, change colorant. And the FDA in the glove guidance document very specifically said, we consider change to materials, including colorants, to, to be significant and require a new 510K. So just be aware of all the guidances that could apply to your product that you would need to consider when assessing those changes that, that might refer to if they're significant or not.